This podcast is produced by the Center for Deployment Psychology at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. In addition, references to any specific companies, products, processes, or services does not necessarily constitute or imply endorsement by the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome to CDP's podcast, Practical for Your Practice. Where we give you actionable intel to support what you do. One colleague to another. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Practical for Your Practice. I'm Dr. Kevin Holloway, a psychologist at the Center for Deployment Psychology, and I am joined here with my fabulous, brilliant co-host, Dr. Corinne Lefkowitz. Hi, Corinne. Hello. Thanks for having me today. I'm excited about today's conversation. Me too. Me too. In fact, so let's set this up a little bit. So back in July, I got to go to a conference um, and it was it was kind of funny. I felt like I was crashing somebody else's party because I'm a psychologist, but it was mostly psychiatry and prescribers and, and such. But so many really interesting topics uh, that were presented. And one of them for, in particular was presented by our guest today, Dr. Lydia Bartholo. And it was about trauma-informed care. And I was like, ah, this is something really important that People who listen to this show, hopefully, you know, what I think really would benefit from. So let me first say, let's welcome to the show, Dr. Lydia Bartholo. Hi, Lydia. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, it's exciting. I, I was uh, I was telling our folks before we started recording that in some ways, being able to have you on the show makes me feel like I, I can justify the cost of going to that conference. <laughs> we get to connect up there and and, and great that way. But so tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? Yeah. So uh, my name is Lydia Barthlow and I do have a doctorate and I also just hate being called doctor. Um, (laughs) I really identify as a nurse. Um, I'm always a nurse first and we'll actually probably come back around to that because in my mind, nursing theory um, is all about trauma-informed care. We haven't sort of historically talked about it that way, but nurses tend to think about patient experience, whereas physicians tend to think more about outcomes. And and thinking about patient experience is really the essence in some ways of trauma-informed care. So again, we'll come back to it. Um, I'm a doctorally prepared nurse. Uh, I currently teach at University of California, San Francisco, and then I I hold sort of an admin slash clinical job up in Portland, Oregon, which is where I live. And um, my my specialty is trauma-informed care for substance use disorders. So what I sort of do my academic work um, around and about and what I tend to um, be asked to talk about most is trauma-informed care as it relates to treating substance use disorders. That's fantastic. And, you know, just for many of the folks that are listening, you know, or have followed us very long, you know, they know that Corinne and I both are, are trainers for evidence-based psychotherapies for trauma. So um, prolonged exposure therapy, cognitive processing therapy, and of course, have experienced treating trauma directly. One of the things that, that came up in your presentation that maybe would be a great place to start is, you know, there, that there's a difference between trauma-focused care therapy and trauma-informed care. And I think that's a difference that's really important to our listeners too. So I, I don't know if that's the right place to start or if that's, if you want to address that. 
Yeah, I think that's a great place to start because they're so often conflated. Yeah. Um, and people get confused. It's it's really common for me to say, you know, my, my academic specialty is trauma-informed care. And people go, oh, perfect. You know, what do you do? EMDR? Or yeah. you do, you know, a CBT with a trauma focus. And um, trauma-informed care and trauma-specific care are different. So let's spend a moment just sort of teasing them out. Um, trauma-specific care is... Um, tending specifically to a history of trauma and trauma sequelae and trauma symptomatology in a one-on-one visit. Um, it could be done in group um, and it could be done psychotropics, um, but it tends to be focused on the specifics of trauma. Trauma-informed care is about transforming our systems, including how we talk to patients, how we set up furniture, how we design clinical pathways to acknowledge that the people that are coming into our services have usually experienced a lot of adversity and a lot of trauma. So trauma-informed care, we consider it to be sort of universal precautions. We don't necessarily need to know what happened to you in order to transform our systems to be more attentive to how they might feel to you if you are a patient or a peer that's experienced a lot of adversity in the past. So whenever I'm thinking about trauma-informed care, sort of the, the first example I like to offer is thinking about sort of the neurobiology of trauma, what we know that does to our nervous systems, what we know that does to sort of our um, daily experience of hypervigilance, of um, sympathetic nervous system activation and arousal. And then how would we design furniture in an office differently mm. to tend to that nervous system that's activated? That's not trauma-specific care. We're not necessarily treating trauma symptoms, but trauma-informed care says, hey, we want to set up the chairs in this office to acknowledge that the patient sitting there may be really activated in this very moment and is probably experiencing some level of hypervigilance as we conduct our interview, even our initial interview. So uh, hopefully that sort of elucidates trauma-informed care as distinctive from trauma-specific care. And when I say I specialize in trauma-informed care for substance use disorder services, what that really means is how do we do things that are really common in substance use disorder services, like, for example, urine drug screens? How do we do those in a way that doesn't re-traumatize people? How do we do those in a way that is... Um, inviting and encouraging attendance of the nervous system that's been really traumatized in the past. And I don't know about you guys, but mental health care and substance use disorder care, it's not always been the most inviting for people that have experienced trauma. For sure. Developed systems um, to be warm and welcoming when people have a history of adversity. So that's what trauma-informed care is, as distinct from trauma-specific care. I really appreciate you making that distinction, Lydia, and really explaining it in a lot of detail. I um, I didn't know much about you before this podcast. So I went on your website and I was looking around and familiarizing myself with you. First of all, I was really impressed by the way you wrote about things and the way you describe things on there. Um, one of the things that I noticed on your website is related to that distinction and how you describe trauma-informed care is really kind of um, offering a kind of universal approach, um, assuming that everybody has dealt with trauma, not just um, catering to a specific few. And I wonder if you could tell us more about that. 
Yeah, absolutely. In trauma-informed care, we assume that people that have walked through the door have experienced adversity, have experienced trauma, because that's true in behavioral health services. Not everyone, but the vast majority have experienced adversity and trauma um, to some extent. And so we just change our systems to tend to everyone. And we just assume you've been through hardship, it's changed your nervous system, it's changed your outlook on life, um, it's deeply impacted you and your behavior behavioral health landscape. And so we're going to change everything and anything for everyone. One thing that I think is common when people are starting to get interested in trauma-informed care is to screen for trauma. It's one of the sort of first things people will do is we're going to screen for trauma. And I want to be really clear that I don't think that that's a bad idea. I think screening for trauma is often really useful. But I want people to be really aware of why they would screen for trauma and what they're going to do with the results of that screening. Um, Because the reality is, is we don't need to know what has happened to you in order to change our services to be more attentive to the person that's experienced trauma. I don't need to know what your ACEs score or what specific ACEs you've experienced to know that a urine drug screen, just as an example, can feel re-traumatizing, criminalizing. I don't need to know exactly what happened uh, to know that the way that I describe a substance use disorder may come across as deeply stigmatizing if I'm not thinking about trauma you've experienced around that previously. So uh, hopefully that elucidates sort of what you're talking about in terms of universal precautions. So Lydia, you said uh, universal precautions earlier, and I, I really like that. Uh, that image or, or even as a metaphor, because I mean, back in you know my, my graduate training years, I spent some time working in, it was a large hospital system, but we were an outpatient clinic. And of course, because of that, we had to do like the annual training and that everybody that worked at the hospital had to do and including universal precautions like personal protective gear and washing your hands and, you know, all those things with the idea that we're, we're not, we don't assume that every single person has a communicable disease or a bloodborne pathogen, but we're going to treat everybody as though they do because that's still good care, even for those who don't. And it protects all of us too. Like we're, we're setting up systems to care for people without being intrusive about all the you know nitty gritty details that might specifically tell us what to do. I, I guess to me that really resonated with me that, that trauma informed care is that we're not, we're not, you know, trying to tell people that that every single person has had trauma, but so many have that it's mm-hmm. still good care, even for those who haven't, to set up our systems in a way that that is sensitive to that. It, it, is that a way to kind of conceptualize that? Is that what you're me- meaning? Or please feel free to <laughs> elaborate. Yeah, I think that that was perfectly said. We don't need to know if you have a communicable disease to know what best practices are. Right. And trauma-informed care, we don't need to know what happened to you in order to transform our systems in a way that tends best to everyone. It also seems to me that some of the things that I, I, I think fall under this trauma-informed care are not necessarily very costly or um, resource-intensive. So there doesn't really seem to be much negative that I can imagine to transitioning our services and our approach in the way that you're describing, Lydia, unless I'm understanding it incorrectly. 
No, I think there's very few negatives. I do think, though, that when um, sometimes in some organizations, when administration starts to hear about trauma-informed care, there can be a little bit of concern because trauma-informed care also assumes that the provider experience is just as important. Trauma-informed care assumes that our health and our wellness are of equal importance to the patient and the peer. And the reason for that is that if we're well-regulated, if we are experiencing low levels of adversity and stress on a daily basis, we're going to be more present. um, We're going to be more trauma-informed. We're going to be more sort of compassionate and humanist with our clients. And we deserve as care providers to have the same systems tending to us. And so sometimes trauma-informed care, I think, Um, can mean for some administrators or some leadership, extra attention on the experience of staff. And that, depending on the organization, can sometimes feel scary. But as a general rule, the the sort of risks of implementing trauma-informed care on a broad scale are very minimal. Trauma-informed care is simply about thinking about what would what a patient or a peer would experience um, as least traumatizing and as most inviting and engaging, even if they'd had a history of trauma. So you, you mentioned a couple of times as an example, like furniture placement, and that, that seems like a maybe an easy conceptual one. Could you give us an example of what would be trauma-informed care furniture placement versus one that's not sensitive to trauma-informed care? Yeah, absolutely. I love this example so much because I think it really um, it really sort of brings home in a practical way how we can implement trauma informed care and, and really sort of what it means. So I want um, I want you all to just think for a second about what a traditional behavioral health office looks like and what you are trained to do in terms of seating. Most of you were probably trained that the room should be set up so that you're perpendicular with the client or the patient or the peer um, and that you have immediate access to the door for your own safety. That at least is how I was trained. And I think of that as sort of um, how, how most of us conceptualize best practices for setting up a behavioral health office. Yeah. In, in trauma-informed care, we would say, ooh, what if that patient... Um, or that peer um, has a significant history of trauma and they come into the office with with persistent sort of hypervigilance with activation and any aggression is actually about um, experiences of trauma in in healthcare settings before experiences of trauma overall. What if we prioritized their access to the door as well? So what that means is transforming the way we think about setting up offices so that both the patient and the provider have equal access to the door so that the provider is not necessarily blocking access to the door for the patient or the peer. That is so common sense in the way you describe it. And I think about working with um, clients with trauma and PTSD and that have uh, that had been at the forefront in my work, but you're absolutely right that it's not something that I learned in um, sort of my basic educational training. It's something that I picked up on after having worked with PTSD for a while. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's just, I would say that's a thing that is kind of basic trauma-informed care. What might we do differently if we think about the nervous system that's experienced trauma in the past? What tiny things can we shift 
to improve our care for those people. It sounds like a multi-level kind of approach too. Like there's things you can do at an individual provider level, like listeners to the, the show could do for themselves, but perhaps even like clinic level or organization level, HR level, even social policy level, you know, if we want to get ambitious. I mean, it, this is not just a checklist of things to do to be trauma-informed. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, my specialty is really thinking about how to build clinical systems that are trauma-informed. Trauma-informed thinking and sort of conceptualization uh, really is inhabiting so many different places at this point. Um, There are trauma-informed schools, and really most of the research and data we have about implementing trauma-informed care comes from a school setting. Um, And what we see in the data around trauma-informed schools is that they're Um, There are fewer restraints used in schools and um, fewer sort of disciplinary actions like, um, uh, I'm forgetting the word, but um, there there are fewer disciplinary actions in trauma-informed schools. Trauma-informed schools do things like start the day with yoga and have safe spaces where kiddos can take a time out. Um, There is trauma-informed policy, which is really thinking about, you know, prevention of things like substance use disorders and psychiatric illness by looking at ACEs at a very young level and a very young age and thinking about how to improve long-term health outcomes by offering um, young adult and kiddo health interventions. So trauma-informed care can be as small as thinking about how we set up the chairs and as big as thinking about the long-term health implications of trauma um, in our communities and how to shift things like schools or pediatric practices to be more attentive um, to people that have experienced trauma and adversity. I really love that because it suggests too, and I, I hope this is coming across that it's not, this isn't relevant to just trauma therapists. It's not just relevant to mental health providers. It's not just relevant to only certain segments of even just even thinking about the healthcare industry. We're, we're talking about this is applicable in so many different instances. So you don't have to be a CPT therapist for this to be relevant. This is relevant to all of us. Yeah, absolutely. From primary care to elementary school educators to building designers, this can be applicable. Thinking about how trauma and adversity shape our lives and then how to make places more receptive and more sensitive um, to that shaping. I have a dear friend who lives in Corvallis, Oregon, and her master's was in trauma-informed architecture. That's so cool. Like home and that are not re-traumatizing. I had never heard of that before. That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. It's mostly around building um, healthcare clinics and um, shelters for houseless folks. Um, But what an amazing idea that the way we build buildings can be more inviting to people that have experienced trauma and adversity. Well, I was just about to ask you what I thought was a simple question, but I think you just made it much more difficult because <laughs> <laughs> clearly you have consulted in with so many different types of providers and organizations and areas. So I thought this was going to be a simple question, but here it goes. Um, what Are there two or three kind of most common pitfalls that you've seen in all of your consulting that you do? Um, maybe maybe you don't know about all the pitfalls in architecture, but at least in providers, um, <laughs> what are the most common pitfalls and, and what would you recommend that providers do differently to, to address those? 
So, you know, most of my consulting work has been around substance use disorder services. And some of the consulting work that I do that doesn't seem directly related to substance use disorder services ends up being relatively related to substance use disorder services. And the number one thing that I see um, where it's really hard for people to implement trauma-informed care and for them to change their systems and change the way that we think about how to provide um, sort of humanist, compassionate services for clients and peers. The biggest thing I see in the way when it comes to substance use disorders is stigma. Substance use disorders are so stigmatized and so much of our understanding of substance use disorders is grounded in stigma that it's often hard for people to really implement and sort of fully conceptualize and embody trauma-informed care for people with substance use disorders. And I, I think that that, um, I think that sort of, uh, it sort of seeps out into other places in behavioral health, but certainly in within substance use disorder care, stigma is the number one barrier to implementing trauma-informed care and to building trauma-informed systems. That makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I, I think even in my own practice, as much as I tried to be open-minded and empathetic, there are these sort of longstanding entrenched assumptions and preconceptions that people have about substance use. And I'm sure that has an impact on treatment and people's uh, willingness and, and thoughtfulness about trauma-informed care. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the place where this shows up the most most is around collaboration and mutuality. So trauma-informed care is built on six tenets. The first is safety. Um, the second is trustworthiness and transparency. The third is peer support. The fourth is um, collaboration and mutuality. And um, people sometimes really struggle with the collaborative piece when they're working with people with substance use disorders. It's true in psychiatric care as well or mental health care as well. But if you sort of carry a deep belief that substance use disorders are a moral failing or a choice, which so many of us have on some level, even if we kind of know in our prefrontal cortex that that's not true, we're still kind of carrying this story. It's really hard to collaborate with someone on their care if if some part of you thinks that they're just choosing to continue to use, or if some part of you thinks that this is a moral failing, or if some part of you thinks that, you know, their sort of wonky brain is what got them here in the first place, it's going to be really hard to do true collaboration. So that's probably the number one place where I see, I see people getting sort of stuck around this. They want to be collaborative. And yet it's really, really hard to collaborate when we have any sort of hidden narratives in our mind about what people are and are not capable of. Really love that. I, as I was preparing for, for having our conversation today, I was looking along, you know, around online too, looking at resources, looking at, um, you know, definitions and, and things people can do. And I, I got to say, one of the things that really I just, I guess, uh, stuck out to me that really kind of captured in partly in my head was, is that trauma-informed care, instead of asking what's wrong with you, it asks what happened to you and it really does shift how we're conceptualizing that person and, you know, kind of what it is, whatever behaviors may be happening or, or how they're presenting instead of it, you know, us trying to come up with some label about describing what's wrong with them, really kind of understanding it within that, that, uh, 
that place of, you know, that this is the result, an understandable result of experiences that they've had. And we don't need to know the details, but we can kind of give them that grace that this is more about what's happened to them than it is about, quote unquote, figuring out what's wrong with them. Yeah, Kevin, I I love what you just said. I think it was so beautifully worded. And I think there's um, there's a real beauty and sort of a a doorway to compassion that we can develop when we start thinking about what are the life events and what are the sort of aspects of structural violence that have impacted people to make it where they're sitting in front of us and they're suffering. And it's really different to think about how to be of service to the person sitting in front of you that's suffering rather than sort of persistently pathologizing people and thinking that you know what's best for them. It's a, it's a big paradigm shift. So well said. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lydia, I really appreciate how um, clearly you've articulated all of this and you're, uh, you really are uh, so knowledgeable on this topic. And I can also hear how passionate you are on the topic of trauma informed care, particularly with substance use uh, disorders. I am um, grateful for you. I'm also hoping that you might um, prove yourself to be a little bit imperfect like the rest of us. And that's We're looking for validation. Please, please. <laughs> the, I need, I need a, it's just too much pressure. Um, so we, as you know, have been uh, asking all of our guests to share a time with, uh, with us and with our listeners where treatment um, or just working with clients didn't go as you anticipated, or even worse, you made a mistake in the work that you did. We're hoping you might have a confessional to share with us about a time when things maybe went sideways and how you recovered and anything that you learned from that experience. Oh, I love this. Uh, I love this question so much. And I love making space for imperfections. Um, I, I just I think it's a great way to sort of round out the podcast. Um, and when Kevin mentioned to me that, uh, that this is something you all did, I really had to rack my brain. And it's not because I don't mess up. It's because I mess up so frequently. I couldn't think of something that seemed sort of the most salient. <laughs> no, okay, that's, helps, that's humility. So many of us, including us, have said almost the exact same thing. So that's very validating, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. And, you know, I'm a prescriber. So um, part of me wants to tell you about some of the horrific med errors I made. I mean, I've, I've made some med errors. I've been prescribing medications for 10 years now, and I've made some med errors that I'm really not proud of. Um, but I, I tried to sort of zone in a little bit on trauma-informed care. And I thought about a huge trauma-informed teaching error that I made once. Um, you know how you go to, or maybe you present or you're teaching and there's often one person that kind of dominates from the audience and, and takes up too much space. I don't oh, know what you're talking about. That what? never happens. Never. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? Um, and, you know, it's so hard to figure out how to manage that from a trauma-informed perspective. So early in my trauma-informed teaching career, what I said was, um, don't worry about talking if you start to dominate. And I think I said it in a more trauma-informed way, but what I essentially said was, don't worry about talking too much because if you start to dominate, I will help step you back. So we're going to step up and step back. And if you're dominating, I will step you back. And I have never had a less engaged audience. No one talked. Oh, man. Oh, wow. And finally, a woman raised her hand and 
said, okay, well, uh, feel free to step me back if you need to, but, but X, Y, Z, and then answered the question I had asked or responded. And I realized that what I had done is I had sort of preemptively told everyone that they talked too much. Mm. And it was not my intention. Um, but when I think about it now, you know, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. Everyone in that room is carrying around some shame, probably because of things that have happened to their life that right. like, they talk too much or they don't talk quite right. And I had activated everyone's shame by saying, and if you talk too much, I, I will step you back. I had very inadvertently done a trauma-informed faux pas where I brought up people's shame at the very beginning of the class. Oh, man, Lydia, you just reminded me of something that I have tried to suppress <laughs> of my own for years where, oh, my gosh, I did something similar. I was um, leading a training and... I, you know, if I'm talking for eight hours straight, eventually it's it's hard to keep my voice up. So I ask people to sit as close to me as possible, as close to the front so I don't have to yell, et cetera, et cetera. And people kept sitting in the back and I made some tongue in cheek, but probably came off as offensive comment like being really directive about you must come sit in the front. Right. And how I just realized now how much I was not appreciating that they may have had very good, valid reasons for why they were not comfortable sitting in the front and they wanted to be near the door or in the back or whatever else. So I'm just going to piggyback on your confessional. <laughs> oh, I, kind of, I like yours better because it's such a good example of, gosh, yeah, people people have all kinds of wild historical experiences. They may really need to sit next to the door. And yeah. as educators, we're just thinking, no, I want you to be up here and engaged which I think translates perfectly to healthcare and doing therapy because we're often thinking about things from our experience, right? How can I get this information or how can I get the client to see this or develop this insight? And so often it's hard for us to remember what they're experiencing while they're under our care. And how it bangs up against all of those experiences, whether it's mm -hmm. shame or whether it's, you know, threat or yeah. Absolutely. So important. Absolutely. And well, I've been humbled by this episode. <laughs> well, and I, I think it's a good point, though, too, like the whole reason that we do this segment is because we want to model that imperfection is OK, right? Like we, we don't have to feel like we have to do everything perfectly right. And it's totally unrecoverable if we don't and our clients will never get better. But that we can learn and we can grow. And I love the fact that, you know, Lydia, you as an expert here are helping us feel that way too. And and hopefully with, with everybody that has kind of shared a confessional with us, I hope that message is coming across that, you know, we're all doing our best and, and our best is not going to be perfect and that's okay. Absolutely. And how so, liberating that is. Right. Yeah. yeah. We're all going to mess it up sometimes. That's Okay. I will give a public apology, however, to any of the, the participants who were in that, that <laughs> workshop. I now recognize the error of my ways, and I am sorry. They're probably all listening. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> I'm you. They've right. been cursing me for years. <laughs> They're, so of, like every episode here on Practical For Your Practice, we like to kind of wrap it up with some, you know, actionable intel, some suggestions or resources, things that what, what can listeners do? Um, you know, if, if, if listening to this episode has really been inspiring to them, as I, I expect a hundred percent that it is, what are things that they can do? What, what are kind of like those next steps or, 
or uh, things that they can apply in their practice currently? Yeah, so I thought there I thought of two things that I wanted to offer. The first is around psychoeducation. Um, I think psychoeducation is something that most of us do at most visits. So I don't know about you guys, but almost every visit, there's some kind of information I want to share with a client. And so what I thought might be useful is to highlight what I think is the most trauma-informed way to do any psychoeducation. And that is actually stealing um, from the motivational interviewing book. So within uh, motivational interviewing, there is a skill called elicit, provide, elicit. And it's where you elicit previous knowledge and get consent before you give education. So it pulls mm-hmm. some of the tenets of trauma-informed care. And then the P's provide the information. And then the second elicit is how does that integrate for the client? How does that land for you? What are you going to do with this information? It's an incredibly trauma-informed, very collaborative, very mutualistic way of giving information. And I love it because we do psychoeducation all the time. It's just a quick thing we can change. Mm-hmm. So using illicit, provide illicit might look something like this. Um, hey, Kevin, has anyone ever talked to you before about trauma-informed care and what that means uh, when you're practicing psychotherapy? A little bit. I've attended a little bit of presentation before, but I, I don't know everything. Oh, great. Okay. Well, if it's all right with you, I'd love to tell you a little bit more about it. Is it all right with you? Sure. Yeah. Great. And then I'm going to tell you about it. And then I would say something like, yeah, so what do you think that means for you? What might that change in your practice? What's your one takeaway from that? Furniture arrangement. Furniture arrangement. There we go. (laughs) Love it. So that's illicit, provide illicit. Again, it comes from motivational interviewing, but I think it's a... It's a deeply trauma-informed way of doing something that we do in almost every visit. And it's just a tiny shift. Asking that someone knows about something before we tell them about it. And making sure that we have their consent to share the information. And then making sure that they're able to integrate that information. That we haven't just sort of... Um, you know, top-down dumped information on them. So that's one thing that I hope can be a practical takeaway as well as furniture arrangement. And then <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to make sure that everyone had the resource of Trauma-Informed Oregon. Trauma-Informed mm-hmm. Oregon um, is an organization in Oregon, of course, um, and they probably sculpted my thinking about trauma-informed care more than anyone else. And the reason that I want to highlight them so much is that they have a ton of trauma-informed resources on their website. SAMHSA also has a lot of great resources. Trauma-Informed Oregon sort of takes it to the next level. They, for example, there's a handout on how to say no and set firm clinical boundaries in a trauma-informed way. So they have a lot of really sort of actionable, concrete, how to do X, Y, Z in a trauma-informed way, as well as really big picture, how to conceptualize trauma-informed organizational change. So Trauma-Informed Organ is a great resource that everyone should know about if they're interested in trauma-informed care. That's fantastic. It's the URL, if, I, if you want to confirm for me, traumainformedorgan.org. That sounds right to me. So we'll we'll include these in the show notes. And if there's a correction needed, of course, that'll be in the show notes too. So if you're listening and want to look up Trauma-Informed Oregon, we'll have that information in the show notes that you can look up. 
Well, thank you so much. This has been really informative and interesting, fascinating. I've, ever since I heard your presentation this last summer, it's been one of those things that I'm like, man, this this is so universally important to any of our listeners, whether they do trauma-focused care, or whether they do other kinds of, of psychotherapy or mental health interventions of, of any kind, and even beyond you know, mental health providers, uh, there's, there's so many places that this is relevant and important. So thank you so much for at least introducing the topic to us. I know there's so much more that could be learned and implemented and, uh, but we're, we're kind of, I feel like we've started down a path. Like, um, we can, you know, talk about this, uh, in an informed way and then, and kind of continue to learn and continue to implement stuff. So appreciate you being here. It's just fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was such a joy to be here. Yeah, it's really our pleasure to have you. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with our listeners as well. Um, we uh, I don't know about you, Kevin, but I certainly learned a bit as well, even though as, I, I thought sure. I was pretty good at trauma-informed care. I'm going to take away <laughs> some new skills as well. Absolutely. All right. Thank you all for listening to us. And uh, we'll talk to you in our next episode. And so until then, we'll see you later. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Practical for Your Practice. Please feel free to subscribe, like, and share. Until next time.